is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. James Fox is a documentary filmmaker, and his new movie, The Phenomenon, was just recently premiered on a number of online streaming services. We will be talking to James in this episode, and this film has been nearly nine years in the making. And I saw it just the other night, and I sense that this film has the potential to change the way the mainstream looks at UFOs. There is a point in our conversation where James said he sees us at a tipping point, that we are, collectively, very close to taking UFOs seriously. And his hope, and mine too, is that this film will help push the collective awareness to a new level of acceptance. This is a remarkably well-made film, and for anyone immersed in the field of UFOs, much of it may seem familiar. Yet, uh, this film was not made for you. Uh, This interview is a little bit shorter than most of these shows. We had some technical issues just before starting the recording, and James had another interview scheduled right after ours. But despite the brevity, there is a lot of meat packed into this discussion. So when I started recording the interview, I knew we were a little bit short on time, so I dove right in without the usual niceties. What I should say before we start is that the film is easy to find. You can go to James' site, which is linked in the show notes, and he very clearly gives the contact info at the end of this interview. This conversation was recorded on Monday, October 12th, 2020. Please enjoy. James, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you for inviting me on, Mike. I appreciate it. Yeah, so your film just came out, and I can only imagine you're in that part right now where you're doing a lot of interviews, and your time is probably eaten up doing interviews like this. I will do my best to ask some good questions, so so you don't have to answer the same question over and over again. The first question would be, like, who is this film for? Like, who who was the audience, the target audience for this film? Well, um, I probably sound like a broken record because I've said this for the last couple of decades. But, you know, and I read criticism sometimes. I, I try not to engage. <laughs> I've actually been told, don't don't go on social media sites. Do not. <laughs> oh, that's a mistake. And listen to all the yeah. criticism because believe me, there's no shortage. <laughs> you know, I get some... You know, some, you know, heavyweight, you know, UFO historians or, you know, people that are just really submerged in the whole topic. And, oh, this film, I didn't learn anything new. I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean you didn't learn anything new? I went after archival footage that the world's never seen before. Jacques Vallée, Richard Dolan, and have all agreed. And I'm like, no, just don't engage. <laughs> but I had been trying to create a body of evidence that can transcend the UFO community, that can penetrate a much broader, more mainstream audience. And I also say, you know, I don't want to come across as though I'm trying, you know, prophesizing and trying to get people to join my cult of believers because that's, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I simply believe that there is enough very, very concrete evidence to suggest that we are not alone. And, um, and I feel that that story is incredibly important and that if people 
um, could see the actual evidence that's out there compiled in one place, um, then it would strengthen the argument. And, and I, you know, I, I get asked the question all the time, you know, James, why is it that you do what you do? You know, they have this sort of incredulous look on their face. And I say, well, if you don't mind me answering that with a question to you, if you could imagine for a moment, hypothetically, suspend judgment and ask yourself if there was evidence that is being suppressed from you that would support the theory that we're not alone in the universe, how significant of discovery would you give that? And people go, well, Jesus, I mean, if that's the case, that's, that's a 10 out of 10. That'd be the most amazing discovery of our time. I mean, there's nothing more important than that. And then I say, well, I'm convinced it's happening. And so this is the first film, and I've done three previous films, in fact, three and a half, because I did two versions of Out of the Blue, where I feel that we're not only getting the interest of mainstream, but people, household names, are willing to put their name on it and support it and write about it and talk about it publicly, which quite honestly, I, I haven't really seen before outside of the UFO community. So it's very, very encouraging sign. And I think that this film might just be the tipping point for that to occur. That, that's certainly what the early signs are indicating. And I think so too. I've definitely seen a sea change in people's, uh, how they've been embracing the subject. How it's, how it's, 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 not, it's not taboo to talk about. You can talk about, you know, UFOs at the dinner table now where you couldn't have a few years ago and you certainly could not have a decade ago or a couple decades ago. Things have changed a lot. And I would argue that it's partially the internet that's had a big influence on that. Uh, just the availability of, of sort of raw data and raw information. And, and, and I think everyone's got a genuine interest in it. Just like you said, it's it, like, you can't help but see that it's an important issue. So yeah, so that too. And then here, so I will do this, which I haven't done. Your film is great. Watched it the other night. I loved it. And I'm actually totally, completely immersed in the subject. Like I am like, I get up in the morning, I deal with this subject all day long. I am working on books. I'm working on podcasts. I'm talking to people all the time. Some of it was, a, you know, it was a little bit of um, a rehash of some of the stories. Of course, but history is history. You know, I can't change history, but yeah. Yeah, but the Lonnie Zamora stuff was, was great to see. And you know what I actually respect? You're not serving anyone to 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 get bogged down in the film, right? So the film races along, like it zips right along. Well, I I literally, you know, I've been saying this for decades is like, uh, if you think about these stories, if you think about the landing case in Rua, Zimbabwe, if you think about the Lonnie Zamora case in April of 1964 with the police officer who witnessed beans standing next to a landed craft, those stories are absolutely incredible. And the only element missing from the equation for an incredibly successful film, in my opinion, is credibility. So if you can sort of think of 60 Minutes or Frontline Special meets UFOs or the Ken Burns of UFOs, that's, that's our objective. Because 
the, the cases and the encounters speak for themselves. I mean, you know, if you can get the audience to walk away thinking that any one, one of those uh, encounters may have actually occurred, then you've done your job, right? Oh, yeah. And it's the film is about an hour and 40 minutes long? Yeah, about that, yeah. Okay, it, it races along and it covers a lot. It covers a lot. Denver gets bogged down. So, uh, so yes, my hat's off to you for for streamlining every story. I appreciated that. Well, let me let me just expand on that for a quick second, if you don't mind, because one of the mantras in the edit studio for the last three and a half years, anytime we questioned where we were going, we would say, "Gentlemen, don't forget, we're on the road to Rua." And what we meant by that was we're going ultimately to lead uh, to the landing case at a school in Rua, Zimbabwe, uh, in Harare, just outside of Harare. Yeah, everyone listening to this right now will, will know that story. This is a pretty sophisticated audience. But um, so that was a conscious decision early on in the process to end the film with that. Okay. Go on. But, but yeah, so the problem here, what I realized what we were up against is, you know, you're dealing with potentially an alleged landing case, an alleged close encounter of the third kind, and you're basically dealing with contact and a telepathic message of environmental destruction to these children in Africa in 1994. And I can assure you, if you walk down the street and tap the shoulder of average, you know, Joe Public, say, hey, have you heard about this UFO landing case in Africa or these aliens get out and interact telepathically with, you know, 66 up to 100 school children in broad daylight, they'd be like, uh, yeah, sorry, what are you smoking? <laughs> so I knew what we were up against, and I knew we had to methodically and diligently build our case. Uh, because, look, we're not catering. Look, this is exciting for people in the UFO community. It's very exciting for me. I mean, I've made four movies on the on the topic, and so... I get excited every time I look at that case. I find it absolutely riveting. And especially hearing from the adults, you know, the children now as adults, they remember it like it was yesterday. But I also knew that if we were going to succeed at what we set out to, to do, and that's penetrate a much broader, more mainstream audience, boy, we were up against it, you know, and that was a slippery slope. And we had to be very careful in what, we, what, what conclusions we drew and, and how we presented the, the case. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and, and I was also really worried for people like, you know, Senator Harry Reid saying, take me out of this film. Uh, this, is go this is too far. I was terrified of that. I mean, I would lose sleep over it for years. And have you heard from him since the film came out? Oh, he's publicly endorsing it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Great. So, one question. We talked, this is going back, and, and I'll bring this up in the second half of the show a little bit, but we met and talked briefly at uh, the UFO conference in uh, Laughlin, excuse me, it wasn't in Laughlin, Nevada, it was just outside of Phoenix, and um, you had just begun work on the film, I think it was called 701? Yes, yes. And, and that was, that's seven years ago now, so you've been working on this over seven years. Well, from concept to completion, I was 43. I was in my late 43rd year, and now I'm 52. So you could do the math. I mean, it's probably like seven and a half, eight years from concept to completion, something like that. Yeah. You know, and there were down times. I mean, there were times when I lost all the producers that were on board. We all kind of parted ways. And, 
And I've seen some people write online like, oh, you know, James was going to do that film 701. Whatever happened to that? How come we didn't finish that one? I'm like, uh, this is that one. <laughs> I changed the title. I got new partners. I had to get new funding. And people say, well, I thought it was going to be all about Project Blue Book Files. No, it was never, that was never the intention. The intention was the number 701 was symbolic of the truly inexplicable, stubborn cases. So that 10 or 12% that sort of defied a terrestrial explanation, that's what the 701 was about. It wasn't like, hey, we're going to do a complete uh, profile or film on, on Project Blue Book. It was never our intention. Obviously, we're going to include some Project Blue Book cases. But 701 eventually morphed into, into the phenomenon. In fact, it didn't have a title for five years. And um, my writing partner, uh, Mark Barish, who's brilliant, he, uh, he came up with the title. He's, well, we were both you know, brainstorming for a while. And we come up with a number of different versions. And then finally one day, and it had been under our noses the whole time, dating back to the 1947 Twining memo. You know, he says the phenomenon. And we actually even thought about taking that exact typeface and, you know, using it for the, for the, um, mm-hmm. for the title. <clears throat> but uh, he's like, hey, what do you think about the phenomenon? And I thought, boy, that sounds good. And I pass it around the room a bit and everybody loved it. So there it was. The 701 transformed, eventually became into the phenomenon. Look, a lot of things changed from when I started, you know, 701. You know, I mean, we got the front page of the New York Times four and a half years into it. That changed everything for us. Yeah, we went back to the drawing boards for another two years. You just grabbed my next question, which was about the New York Times article. Hey, let's take our very first break. And when we come back, we can talk about that article and the impact it had on the production. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with James Fox, who just premiered his film, his feature-length documentary, The Phenomenon. And we are talking about the production of it. And just before the break, I was going to ask a question. You beat me to it, but I'm going to ask it formally now. Where were you in your film production when the November 2017 New York Times article came out that... I guess how to say it. It wasn't, well, it was disclosure, like from a mainstream news source. It doesn't get more mainstream. A full-on disclosure event took place during the production. And like, what, what was that like? And how did it change the concept of the film you were working on? Well, people were, you know, asking for years during production, how are you going to end this? And, and I never really know how I'm going to end a movie. Inevitably, you know, that takes so much time. Um, there's peaks and valleys in production, and there's peaks and valleys in the UFO phenomenon. There'll be vast periods of really not a lot of activity and not a lot of um, media coverage, and then suddenly a sighting will happen, some event will occur, and they'll be back in the headlines. So I sort of said uh, jokingly, "Oh, something, something will happen, and you know, maybe a sighting or some particular news story gets picked up." But I never dreamed it was going to be you know, a secret Pentagon UFO program on the front page of the New York Times. I mean, that was just, that one caught me off guard. But it was one of the best things, obviously, that could happen. But it also added about the better part of two years onto production. In fact, possibly more than that, because when we finally, with the help of George Knapp, by the way, George Knapp was unbelievable. There are a lot, so many people that deserve a lot of credit for this film. I, I would, we you know, dedicate an hour to, if I rattled off all the names of people that were influential, like Lise Beagle and, and uh, 
Jacques Vallée and et cetera. But we got an interview with Senator Harry Reid, which was a huge big deal, as you can imagine. I was pinching myself during the interview. And during that brief moment with Reid, Senator Reid, he drops this bomb on us when I asked him in a quick B-roll session as he was about to lead the interview, you know, what was one of the more astonishing aspects that you learned during ATIP? And he started talking about the fact that they were interfering, not only seen over, but interfering with uh, super sensitive nuclear weapon facilities and shutting off uh, missiles in some occasions. And that if the president on a couple of cases that he had mentioned had called upon to launch those missiles, he couldn't have done it. And that was a bombshell for us because obviously we'd heard about these cases in the past, but having someone of his stature confirming it for you on camera, um, you know, we realized, look, we're going to have to address this in the film. So I reached out to the king of UFOs and nukes, Robert Hastings, and he very generously made all of his research available to us. And we spent the better part of a year putting together a seven, eight minute section of, of UFOs and nukes. And that's, that also added about a year to the production. So, um, though, but those were wonderful, wonderful aspects. Um, I mean, we crammed a lot in, in that short period of time. What was it? I would, an hour and 41 minutes or something. Yeah. And you got to my next question. You're doing great. You're you I don't even have to ask him. You're going right there. So I wanted to ask about the nuclear issue. Now for me, that's like a, if the UFOs are coming to earth for anything, if they can shut off our nuclear bombs, like, wow, more power to them. Uh, that's, that makes me feel great. You know, that they care enough about us to like snatch the matches out of the kids' hands as, as they're just about to get into trouble. So one thing that, uh, now, for me, this is this is sort of going down to more the avenue of research that I'm involved in. Robert Hastings, about a year ago, came out with a book where he comes forward with his own UFO contact experiences. So here's a researcher at the front edge of a vital story in the UFO field. So you you must have known about Robert Hastings' admission about his UFO contact experiences. Oh, yeah, he told me he was going to do it. And question, why wasn't that in the film? Because, you know, baby steps. Um, this is the first film I've done, and this is like my fourth and a half movie on it because we revised Out of the Blue significantly. I think I spent five years on Out of the Blue and then another two years after that. So it's kind of like a second director's cut version, but it took a couple of years, so... Um, and you might notice as well as uh, I know what I saw in 50 Years of Denial, I've never, ever gone down the road of, of an alleged close encounter of the third kind. Oh, I've noticed. Yeah, I've very much noticed. Yeah, yeah something that I've, I've chosen to to avoid because I feel like you can't just dive head first. You got to kind of dip a toe in and slowly acclimate and uh, first acknowledge that there are clearly structured craft of unknown origin whizzing around in our airspace under intelligent control. You know, these things that fly rings around our fastest jets and that sort of thing. But the next phase, which took me the better part of 20, 20 plus years, <laughs> is, uh, okay, well, there's clearly an intelligence behind them. Then let's, let's look into the, what uh, Dr. Heineck had called close encounters of the third kind. And so as the first time I've done it, I picked, I was very selective, obviously in the case, cases that I chose 
because I felt like we have to be. And uh, now whether or not I will eventually delve into, you know, alleged reported, uh, you know, contact abduction sort of cases uh, remains to be seen. But I feel like it's baby steps at this point because um, uh, you got to, I don't think the public's ready for it. But you did cover the, the Zimbabwe case. So you did, you have covered it. That's not an abduction case. There's a very different, big difference between contact and abductions. Okay. I will add um, Emily Trim. Uh, the, uh, she's Canadian and she was one of the little girls. She was eight years old at the time. Has recently done an audio interview. It just came out. It was, it's hosted by Stuart Davis on his podcast called Artists and Aliens. And I, I'm paraphrasing what she said, and I, and I really feel the need to be cautious in what I say. She said that she feels she was on board that craft in that, in that event. So I, coming from an abduction research end of things, I look at that as direct contact. They were talking telepathically to the beings. Then, uh, I mean, they entered the people's, the children's minds. So that was a strong case of direct contact. Oh, you know, I'm not denying that. I even label it as such. At the end of the film, I put contact. I mean, that's the first thing I did. But there's a very big difference between con alleged contact and being whisked out of your bed in the middle of the night against your will. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's the distinction that I'm making. And I, and I just haven't gone there. I don't think that I'm prepared. And I'm not so sure the general public is prepared for what may or may not lead down at the end of that road. And I will have to say that I have written about my own first-person experiences uh, and put it in a book. So I'm basically coming forward with my own UFO contact experiences. So I'm. Uh, this is a personal subject at my end. Yeah. No, no, I've, I've, I've talked to some really, really credible, solid, grounded individuals about this. And, and I have no doubt they're telling the truth. I just don't think that... Like I said, baby steps. Yeah. In my opinion, it's, it's baby steps. <clears throat> you know, I talked to, uh, indirectly to Lou Elizondo, who's been investigating this in an official capacity at the Pentagon, and he kind of agreed that, you know, baby steps. And he even said as much the other day, he endorsed the film on Twitter, and he said, this film says things that I couldn't say. Uh, it's accurate. I was there. I've seen the files kind of thing, which was I thought was really exciting. And I know that that Lou Elizondo has learned a lot more than just, you know, stuff that's revealed in my film. I think that he was referring to the possibility that, you know, these cases are, are happening. So, but again, you know, uh, slowly but surely this stuff's coming out and it's exciting. Yeah. And here's one thing I'll say before we take our next break. I'll just, uh, so I've come out, come forward with my own experiences. There has been remarkably little backlash. Right, so my books haven't sold very well. I mean, they're doing pretty well given the fringe topic, but like I've had no, I've had no flack directed at me. So I feel like I'm seeing this, you know, what we talked about earlier that the the public has changed. So like I went there, I did it. I talked about my own experiences, and I I went for it, and there has been very little backlash. So I'm just just saying that yes, you and I are sort of recognizing the same thing. You are doing it. Uh, in a much more mainstream format than I, I have done it in a, in a published book. But we need to take our second break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. 
We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with James Fox about his new movie, The Phenomenon. And just before the break, we sort of wrestled with the, the complexities of this issue. And, uh, and I will say that during the break, we, we started a little conversation. I will say that, that it was just a couple days ago that you were on Tucker Carlson on Fox News. It was a pretty short segment, but can we talk about that now? Yeah, it, uh, it was four minutes and 40 seconds. Oh, that is short. And they plugged the film and the particular angle that they highlighted were two things. One, Senator Harry Reid's revelation, bombshell revelation. And I know this doesn't come as news in the UFO community, but it certainly does in mainstream. And it certainly does of the Senate Majority Leader confirming it, um, that UFOs are shutting off our highly sensitive, you know, nuclear armed weapons. And I even commented on, I quoted Senator Reid directly where he says, you know, if the, if the president wanted to launch, he couldn't have done it. And I know that got under I, President Trump's skin because that means that someone's more powerful than he is. <laughs> and I like that, that someone's more powerful than the guy with the finger on the button. And so. here's, my, here's my proof. So that was Friday night. Now on Sunday, he was on a morning talk show, Fox News. And the anchor suddenly says, hey, what about these UFOs? You know, are, are UFOs real? And then she took out a, the, the, the Guardian article that it written up about our movie. And uh, she literally reads a quote from it. And uh, the president says, oh, yes. He said, I, I heard about that two days ago. And then he goes on this whole thing about how powerful the military is. It's way more powerful than it's been with any other president. All this stuff. Space Force. He mentioned Space Force, too. In that yeah, case. but I'm thinking he's doing that because he just, you know, he just got Senator Reed, he's probably his nemesis, saying that you're powerless to these things. And that just doesn't bode well with this president. So I was laughing when he goes on and on about it. But then now he's actually cornered into saying that he's going to look into whether UFOs are real. The intelligence agencies are not going to tell him that. He's not going to get anything. <laughs> So he's not going to get anywhere, I'll tell you that much. I highly doubt he's going to get anywhere. <laughs> oh, what do you mean get anywhere as far as? He's saying that he's going to look into it. He's saying he's going to look into the intelligence agencies to find out whether UFOs are real. They're not going to give him any information. That's the quote that Clinton had. Well, you know, yeah, they've all, they've all tried. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know when the last president that actually had information. It might have been Nixon, I don't know. But, um, but in any case, maybe if there were certain people within the intelligence agencies that were, uh, that he could acknowledge specific, you know, evidence that maybe Lou Elizondo or Christopher Mellon could point out to him that maybe he could get that specific stuff classified. But in terms of like getting access to all the other good stuff, I mean, I think that's probably even out of, that's probably in the private sector at this point would be my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you must be aware of this. So you've been doing full-time research. And, and that was actually one of the things I liked about your movie is that like you were right there. Like you, you could hear your voice asking the questions. You could see you had traveled to um, uh, Brazil, excuse me, Brazil, right? That was in the film? Well, a little bit, but yeah, I was in Brazil. I was all over, yeah, I was in China. I did a, a Brazilian general who unfortunately just passed. He's in the film. 
uh, I interviewed him, and but I interviewed a, a number of witnesses in Brazil. Yes, he's in the movie. Okay, great. Okay, so I did have that right. Um, so one question is, you covered the Virginia case for the documentary, but it never made it into the film. Is, do I have that right? You do. I hired a translator. I put together a lovely segment. It was just a lot, very powerful. The film was too long and I simply couldn't squeeze it in. And it was incredibly painful for me to come to terms with that. And, um, and I had to come to terms with a lot of different, you know, I've been reading comments on social media. People are like, oh, I was supposed to be in the movie and he just cut me out. It's like, well, I didn't just cut you out. I literally had to make some really tough decisions. It was literally, jokingly, we put it in the, in the edit studio, kill your darlings. Yeah. I mean, I met some wonderful researchers in Australia, in China, in South America, um, Africa. And uh, I just simply didn't have the room. I, you know, I had a first screening when the film was two hours and 10 minutes. And I thought, could I pull it off? Can I pull off a two hour and 10 minute film? I'm going to try. And uh, I could see the audience. It was about um, maybe about 170 to 200 people, something like that. And I could see them fidgeting at about at an hour and a half. Okay. Looking at their watches, checking their text messages, going to the bathroom. And I knew you could just feel the energy in the room was just waning. And I knew that uh, I had to cut it shorter. I had to keep it flowing. Less would be more. And so I had to do some really, make some really tough decisions and, and I had to trim the fat. Yeah. Yeah. I can. So I, I understand that. I recognize that completely. Uh, so the Virginia case in particular, do you have plans for that footage? Yes. And what are those plans? <laughs> probably do a one hour special on it okay so after this film which i feel very strongly is going to do great and people will want to see more from you so yeah i could see this that working out really well where those follow-up films could do quite well i have literally ptsd just talking about getting back in the edit room right now <laughs> okay well take a go take a break sit on the beach for a long time and zone out yeah. oh my god i know Somebody had mentioned that on a radio show just recently, and I, I my whole body just tensed up. <laughs> I was like, no. My body's like, you're not doing it. No, you're not. No. Okay. I'll, I'll ask the same question. How many years? When should I ask it again? Uh, no, I'll, I'll get into it next year. Okay, next year. I'll wait a full year, but no, and I'll, and I'll put some pressure. No. <laughs> um, you have been in this field enough to know that there is this cloud around this stuff there is this weird stuff that just seems to percolate and be part of this mystery. And there is this stuff like weird synchronicities or weird dreams or poltergeist activity or, or like weird obsessions, like mostly looking into researching UFOs. These things are, are connected to even just simply a sighting. Have you run across this or people sharing stories like that? Sure. Um, pretty much every time. I know it's so weird. I know that's what I'm like. I'm in the middle of like trying to make sense of that. If I shared, if I shared some of the stories I've heard from the witnesses, your your audience would probably shut this radio off. No, no, no. This audience is is hungry for the strangest stuff. As am I. Oh, yeah. Well, just extremely. Like I give you an example. 
Um, and I've seen some criticism online, which I, for the most part, I, I, I have to ignore. I can't engage in it. But there was a photograph that was taken in 1966, just outside Westall School by a guy named James, and I won't reveal his last name. It was a Polaroid. And uh, he'd never gone on the record officially with it. He'd never shared it publicly. He'd never gone on TV or, you know, done a, an interview, which typically for people that were going to go to the great lengths of hoaxing something, they would promote it. They wouldn't just hoax it and stick it in, you know what I mean? Forget about it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And we eventually got this guy on camera in the movie for the first time without revealing his full name. I'm sure it's easily researched, but in any case, and he talked about the reasons why he wanted this story just out of his life or the weird things that were happening to both him and his wife after, afterwards. And it went on for, I don't know, a year or so. Strange visits, weird smells, weird lights, just really off the wall stuff, stuff that's so bizarre that I simply couldn't believe it. But I've heard that so many times, he just simply didn't want it in his life, you know? And his wife didn't want it, he didn't want it, he never asked for it. I mean, he saw something strange in the sky when he was with a, had a Polaroid camera in his garden taking photographs for his mother uh, to send to her about how her plants were doing. And he took, snapped a, a shot of this thing before it shot off at a high rate of speed. And that was it. And then all these weird things started happening, like poltergeist type of stuff. Yep, yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, even the 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 pilot is Fravor is his name. The pilot yeah. from yeah. yeah. That's mm -hmm. the question I would have asked him. You know, like if I've ever meet him, that's the question I'm going to ask him. It's like, hey, what's going on? Any weird stuff going on? Any weird? And I would not be surprised if he had a few odd stories to tell. I don't think he did, but I'd have to ask him again. And he may not. He may not. But there were others as part of that side, and they did. Which does not surprise me. Yeah. So that's the, there's this mystical, strange aspect that is in the shadow constantly connected to this phenomenon. Yeah. Here's a question I have to ask for totally selfish reasons. What was it like working with Jacques Vallée? Jacques initially got involved at arm's length. And he did so because Lee Spiegel, who'd, who'd done the 1978 United Nations event with him and Coyne and uh, Dr. Hynek um, and Gordon Cooper played a part in that as well. Uh, and so he's got a long standing relationship with Jacques and they stay in touch and they're friends. And Jacques got together with myself and Lee when he was out in California. It's kind of a long story, but we had lunch a couple of times and Eventually, after much poking and prodding, Jacques somewhat reluctantly uh, committed to a very small role uh, of maybe doing one interview about his time in the Rockefeller Initiative in the 90s. And, um, but that was great. And then um, he came out to the studio a bunch of times. He saw some of the content that we were dealing with, in particular the 1964 Lonnie Zamora case, which he was intimately involved with. And that was one of the cases that he, um, just days before was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Dayton, Ohio with, with Hynek. And he was trying to explain to Hynek the cases that were categorized as psychological 
And he was telling Heineck these were probably close encounter cases. And then he was referring to some um, cases in, 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 in France at the time. I think it was a 1954 wave of close encounter reports. And, uh, and Heineck was listening. Heineck was hearing Jacques out. Then two days later, he gets a phone call. Heineck does. And there was a landing case in Socorro. And so Jacques watched the transformation process take place because of the sheer you know, volume of physical evidence at the, at the landing site. I mean, the, the, the bushes were still smoldering when the military got there. And, and, he, was, and he saw the impact that that case had had on Heineck. And they talked a lot about it and researched it a lot. And I had spent five years going back and forth to Socorro, getting to know the wife and the daughter, Diane, and the son, Michael, and all of his coworkers and the local sheriff. And I mean, I really dug my teeth in that, that case. And um, he figured, hey, you know, I, I could help put the pieces of the puzzle together in a way that's never been done before. And so he committed to being, playing a much more significant role in the film and gave us multiple interviews. And, and he would sit in marathon edit sessions over the weekends in a little cabin with no running water, no toilet, no internet. He had no phone service whatsoever when he was out there. And he would sit in the back of the room and he would say, well, he'd sit in the front as well. He would say, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> No conjecture, no hyperbole, no you know speculation, just the facts. And so it was, uh, it was such an honor. And then, I don't know, maybe a year or so into our relationship and his involvement with the film, he said, we need to talk. And, and that's when he said, I want you to come into the, to the lab with Gary Nolan and, and myself. And I knew that was big. Yeah. And so the fact that we got to go in there, that was a very, very special day a very, very special moment in production because I knew that this was big. This was a real scientific research, you know, investigation that was going on using state-of-the-art lab and technology. And they were coming up with some pretty startling preliminary yes. analysis. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Jacques's very cautious about making any definitive statements until, uh, you know, proper scientific review in, the, in, a, in a journal um is is complete but but the preliminary analysis is is, is was uh, startling i agree i agree hey we're winding down now this this hour flew by um and i feel like i could i could sit here listening to these stories for hours and hours and hours i will let you go but um and Whitley will be doing another interview with you in a day or so 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 the listeners will get one big long interview out of you on the site Hey, how do people find the movie? So it's available for digital download. Um, you can Google the phenomenon, or you can go to the website at www.thephenomenonfilm.com, and that will give you a number of links to choose from. The price varies a little bit, I think from $12.99 to $20, but there are a couple of links that feature roughly three hours of bonus material. And I highly suggest those of you out there to select the bonus material because A, I went through great lengths to provide it and B, it's good. <laughs> so it's three hours of bonus. So double the length of the movie. Oh yeah. And I've got uh, the full unedited, 
2007 uh, event at the National Press Club with Leslie Kane. I've got an interview with Story Musgrave. It's absolutely riveting about time and space and the, and the fact the universe is teeming with life. and uh, Just absolutely fascinating. And none of it made it in the film. Outtakes of Hynek. All just wonderful things. Uh, you, 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 real treat. A real, real treat. Um, and I think that those are only available either on iTunes and Vimeo. But again, check the links at the website, www.thephenomenonfilm.com. Thephenomenonfilm.com. Great. Hey, this last question is going to be quick. In your heart, what do you want this film to do? What do you want the impact of this film to be? Go big. You can go big on this. Yeah, well, we've reached a tipping point. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely encouraged by the level of endorsement and, and um, uh, the, the reviews the film is getting at, at, in a mainstream level is exciting. The fact that Lou Elizondo is publicly endorsing this film as a tool to educate members of government, perhaps that, that don't have much more knowledge than the average person on the street. Um, and that the skeptics will realize the argument of there's only anecdotal evidence supporting the claims of some of these encounters is simply not true. And uh, we could put that one to rest once and for all. We're not screaming from the hilltops, ET is here. Nobody's doing that in the film. People can have their own personal observations, a witness, and describe whether they felt it was of a terrestrial nature or not. And we'll leave that up to the witness to, to, to do. We, we stay out of it. And so I would like mainstream to realize that there's far more to this than swamp gas, misidentified aircraft, and weather balloons. Right on for you. More power to you. Hey, thanks so much. This has been a delight. Thank you for having me on. I had a good time. So did I. This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Now, there was a point in this interview between the first and second breaks where I asked James about the issues of not addressing the abduction phenomenon in his films. And we certainly talked about that in the interview. But there's, there's one point that you did not get to hear, and it's sort of funny. Right after I said, we will be right back, two things happened almost simultaneously. First, I apologized to James for coming on so strong, and I said, I didn't mean to hold your feet to the fire. And in that same moment, James asked if he could put on some socks because his feet were cold. Now, in the moment, I did not catch the irony of that exchange, but I did catch it during the editing of the show while listening to our conversation with headphones on. He said it very clearly. He said he had cold feet and needed to put on socks right as I said, I didn't mean to hold your feet to the fire. Uh, I love this kind of thing. I love these kind of playful synchronicities that just show up in the midst of all this stuff. I want to take a minute or two to tell one story. This happened at the IUFOC, which is the International UFO Congress just outside of Phoenix, and I'm pretty certain this was 2013. This is like a five-day event, and on the last night, they have a banquet. And um, 
and people dress up and they give out awards and such. So it's actually kind of a fun scene. So I was wearing a suit and tie, which I almost never do. And I was milling around the crowd and I saw Lee Spiegel. And Lee has been a reporter for the Huffington Post and he writes articles about UFOs. So I walked up to him and introduced myself and, and we got to talking and I said, hey, you know, I read your stuff in the Huffington Post and I'm familiar with the work you're doing. And I have to ask, how come you don't cover abductions in your reporting? And he looked at me very straight and very calmly said, well, I do that on purpose. I do it because I feel that this subject needs to be taken seriously. Now, that was a disappointment for me, having had my own contact experiences, that, that he would sum up the events in my life, in my lifetime, as somehow outside the bounds of being taken seriously. Yes, I understood where he was coming from. You know, so we talked a little bit more and I milled around a little bit more. And then I walked up to James Fox and I introduced myself. And we had actually met some years before and we have a mutual friend, so it was easy to talk with him. And then I said, hey, your new movie, 701, I have to ask, are you going to cover the abduction phenomenon in this movie? And he very calmly said, oh, no, we're not planning to cover that. And I asked why. And he said, well, we feel the movie needs to be taken seriously. And... And to have that happen twice in about five minutes, I mean, my heart just sank. And it was hard for me to hide my disappointment. And he saw it. He saw the look in my face. Um, now, to be fair, I was wearing a suit and tie. I was clearly trying to be taken seriously. So on some superficial level, why was I any different than James Fox or Lee Spiegel? Okay, let's fast forward about a week. I'm at my home in Idaho, and the phone rings, and it was James. And I was a little bit surprised to hear from him. And he called, and he said he wanted to check in. Now, I had given him my business card at the conference, so he had my number. And and he said he felt bad about our conversation at the conference. And, and I was surprised and grateful that he would call. And we talked a little bit, and he shared some of the challenges of trying to create a film on UFOs that is directed towards a mainstream audience. And then he asked me if he knew any credible people who would be willing to talk on camera, people who have had the UFO contact experience. And I thought for a while, and I, and I gave him some names, and he said he would think about it. It wasn't a long conversation, but it meant a lot to me that he would follow up the way he did. And he understood that this was an emotional issue for me. Okay, let's jump back and talk about some of the things that took place in this interview. Late in the interview, I said that, um, in my eyes, the Ariel case, the Zimbabwe case, was most probably a mass abduction. And James said no, he felt it was contact. And this got a little confusing because at times I will often use the phrase direct contact as a way to avoid the heavily loaded term abduction. So when I say direct contact, I'm saying abduction without using the term abduction. And in this exchange in the interview, I mentioned a recent audio interview with Emily Trim, and she was one of the children involved in the Zimbabwe event. And she's an adult now, and she recently did a podcast, and she implied, and I'm, I feel like I'm quoting her pretty closely here, she said she felt she may have been on board that craft. And you could hear it in her voice. This was not an easy thing for her to talk about. And, and I recognize, I more than anyone recognize the emotional 
strain not only to to come to terms with that, but to talk about it in such a public way. Now, leading up to all this, I had read a lot about the Ariel case, and I've also watched whatever videos I can find, and there are a handful of those online. And some of the witnesses, not all, but some of them, will describe a sort of timeless quality to the experience. And, um, and this is quite normally reported in abduction cases. This eerie timelessness was not part of the documentary, but it was described by Emily in her recent podcast. And, and that interview with Emily is on Stuart Davis's remarkable podcast series, Artists and Aliens. And that show is linked in the show notes. And for me, Emily's experiences, as she describes them on Stuart Davis's podcasts, certainly add a lot of depth to the aerial school sighting um, in a way that would have been impossible to portray in the documentary. So it's a two-part episode coming up on artists and aliens, and that is all linked in the show notes. Now, as I am recording this, the phenomenon, the film by James Fox, has only been online for about a week, and it is my understanding that it has been extremely successful in just the few days that it's been out. And I will say it deserves to be a big success. It is a remarkably professional and streamlined film. And as I said before, it is directed at a mainstream audience. And I feel like this kind of film, this kind of journalism, could have a huge impact on the way the public sees and understands UFOs. Now, fingers crossed, if the film James made, The Phenomenon, is successful, it falls in line with a number of other, what I consider, uh, successful and well-made films. Uh, Jeremy Corbell's series of films, that includes Patient 17 and Bob Lazar, uh, and the documentary he made on Skinwalker Ranch. Those have been surprisingly popular given their fringe topic. Also, Witness to Another World, and there's another movie called Love and Saucers. Both of those movies are beautifully made and remarkably sensitive, and I think that anyone watching those movies would have to be moved by the, by the subtlety that, of the filmmakers. So, there have been some remarkable documentaries in the last few years, and I have to assume that people have seen these making money and seen that they are popular, and hopefully the, let's just say the money people in Hollywood, I hope they are eager to invest in more films like this. So, once again, anyone listening now, please, I recommend this film highly. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.